This is Doug Workman, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned into episode 4.14 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Hope everybody is getting used to what may be the new normal in the the COVID world that we live in, the COVID-19 world that we live in. I hope you guys are still staying active out there mentally, physically, and trying to stay steady, steady as she goes. Um, Hopefully you've been catching up on the Avalanche Hour podcast episodes that are out there available at your fingertips they can be found on any platform that you might listen to podcasts on soundcloud apple Podcasts, stitcher radio the list goes on and on if you listen to podcasts on a certain platform and can't find this podcast let me know reach out send me an email at the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com and i'll be sure to get it up there uh, I've been lacking on the website a little bit lately, lacking or slacking, uh, so I'll probably find some time this week to update some of the most recent episodes on the website. You can also find links to the to the episodes there. It's www.theavalanchehour.com. I also have bios up there of the contributing um, professionals um, that, that contribute to the, the podcast and some links to some other nice uh, websites out there, some good resources, some online educational resources uh, concerning snow and avalanches. So if you have some time on your hands these days, as we all may have a little bit more than usual, check out that website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Another website you should check out um, with a link to uh, a great survey that's going on going to help avalanche research um, would be uh, the Simon Fraser University um, avalanche terrain information study and you can find this at www.avbullvis.avalancheresearch.ca that's avbullvis.avalancheresearch.ca that might be a little bit confusing I'll make sure to put a link on the the social media to that survey, study, um, take part in that, and help out these folks who are doing some great research up at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. Today's episode features Doug Workman. Doug lives in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and ski guides really all over the world. He's done some pretty awesome awesome trips from Antarctica to 
veteran ski guiding, heli ski guiding in Valdez, Alaska for Valdez Heli Ski Guides um, to, I think, some trips to Greenland. And you'll hear all about what he's done in this episode. Um, I had never met Doug before, before we did this interview. And uh, after listening to the episode for the first time, I, I thought to myself, wow, Doug, Doug sounded really guarded and which is understandable he had never he had never met me before and so um you know it certainly takes some time to open up to one another when you're entering into conversation about what you do um but the more i listened to this episode i listened to it several other times and maybe even twice back to back on a ski tour one day and i started to really appreciate doug's ability to just shoot it straight um you know, he's very clear and concise in his answers, and uh, he's a, I, I started thinking he's a little bit like 60 or maybe 80 grit sandpaper. You know, he really gets the job done, but he's gonna he's gonna take some paint off with it. So um, I enjoyed our conversation, and Doug, I hope we hope we get to do it again and and get to know each other a little bit better here in the future. Um, another podcast that you should definitely listen to with Doug is Drew Hardesty's interview with him with the Utah Avalanche Center. Um, maybe even digs in a little bit more into some of the issues that, that we talk about. Not necessarily issues, but some of the topics that we talk, talk about. All right, I'm blabbering enough from me. Here we go with Doug Workman. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. Good to meet you. Yeah, good to meet you as well. Uh, please introduce yourself and talk about your your background, where you're from, how you got into skiing and the avalanche game, just kind of your career roadmap, if you will. Uh, well, I grew up back east in Connecticut, went to college in Colorado, in Colorado Springs, and then uh, drifted for a while, did the, you know, living out of your car thing, climbing and skiing and um, wound up in Jackson in the winter of 99, 2000. Uh, and back then there were definitely was not, uh, the amount of ski guiding that there is now. So I was guiding in Alpine climbing in the summers and, uh, going back East to guide some ice a little bit for parts of the winter and just kind of teach some avalanche courses and piecing it together. And, uh, work in Knoll's winter courses. And then in 2003, Don Sheriff asked me to come up and uh, work a season for Valdez Heliski guys as an apprentice. And uh, I continued working there, uh, you know, full seasons as a guide and operations manager until uh, a few years ago when I started, I've, I've got two kids now and I, uh, in 2015, had my first uh, child and, and so now I still go to Alaska a little bit but it's for very short stretches right and then filling out the winter guiding here in the Tetons yeah I always I joke that I'll I work for anybody that's willing to pay me but I uh, tr- you know try to have access to as many work venues as possible and Jackson's obviously a really good one uh, for a ski guide because there's a lot of uh, different venues and so I work uh, as a backcountry ski guide at the Jackson Mountain Resort and then I uh, guide in 
Grand Teton National Park ski touring and work uh, for high mountain heli skiing. And yeah, that, that takes and then takes up the bulk of my winter. Mm-hmm. And then I also work uh, for Mammut. And what do you do for Mammut? I'm their avalanche program manager. So I, uh, a lot of what I do is overseeing uh, customer service for professionals. So it's a lot of training for industry groups like search and rescue teams and guide services and uh, ski patrols that use uh, Mammut avalanche safety products. Um, and just make sure they're using them to the, their full abilities and correctly and all that. And it's a good job, especially uh, for a guide, because most of those trainings and whatnot are in the uh, autumn months when guiding is slow anyways. All right. Um, although it is a year-round job, but, you know, there's a lot more uh, travel and active work in the in the autumn. Sure. Well, yeah, I hope we can get into that a little bit later in the interview here, talk about some of the product offerings and why you think it's really some of the best products out there. So um, I'm sure you believe in that product, no doubt. Um, So it sounds like you've ski guided in some pretty far reaches of this world. I don't think you mentioned ice axe expeditions, but um, I believe you've guided down in Antarctica. Yeah, I've done five trips to Antarctica. Uh, I haven't been there for quite a while just because, again, with kids, it's a a rather long trip when you include travel and just what it takes to get across the Drake Passage and back. And um, there's kind of more bang for your buck in other places where you don't have to spend so much time getting there or getting home. Mm -hmm. But I've done that quite a bit and then uh, skied a lot, ski got a lot in Alaska and Valdez and the Tordrillos and Denali and uh, and then for the last since maybe 2013 I think I've been uh, chartering boats in Norway uh, and have a partnership with Seth Hobby from Northern Alpine Guides and we run trips up in Svalbard and uh, also mainland Norway and Lingen Alps and stuff like that in in uh, mostly in May. Cool. Yeah, so like I said, those are some far reaches of this world. Um, I've read something that you wrote, and you, you you called it a knowledge vacuum of when you maybe arrive in some of these locations and you're totally unfamiliar with them, maybe for the season, the seasonal snowpack that's been going on there. How does your tolerance for the operational risk change in those environments when you get there, and how do you manage that? Well, obviously, if you're in what we're calling a knowledge vacuum, you know, a place where there's just limited information, no weather stations, not a lot of people going there. Um, You're, you know, any, anybody that has any uh, fear of their mortality is probably going to feel pretty humble in that setting. And, and, and as such build in a bigger margin of safety than they might otherwise. Um, Obviously you could look at that one of two ways. You could, it, it, it also begs the question of like what happens uh, due to overconfidence when you do have a lot of information. Because um, it's a little bit ironic that in those remote settings, there's something inherently more dangerous about it, but there's probably less accidents because you're being less aggressive. Mm-hmm. So And fewer people, maybe. Yeah. So talk about maybe a... a- a guide meeting that would go on in one of these places. What are, what are some of the things that you guys are bringing up? 
Well, it all depends on where you are. I mean, like these trips I'm talking, we're talking about in, in, in a place like Svalbard, Svalbard, you're just uh, working with clients you probably know really well and just with one other guide. So it's probably far less formal than a meeting at, say, you know, Valdi Teleski Guides or Tordrilla Mountain Lodge or something where you have, you know, half a dozen or more guides and guides and helicopters and groups going all off in different directions. And you've got access to far more information so in some ways there's a lot more to talk about um so you know on a trip with one other guide in a remote setting you're probably mostly just talking about um you know your your what you think the conditions are for the day and how you're going to manage that and what your your route is for the day um but yeah obviously a lot different than when you have a large group of people sure so then let's let's talk about that when you're guiding in the Tetons and you're working amongst a, a team of, I don't, I don't know how many guides you work with on a, on a given day for Exum or Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, or let's say Valley's Heli Ski Guides. What do those morning guide meetings look like? And maybe you could comment on the role of dissent amongst team members in those guide meetings. Uh, well, I guess uh, the guide meetings for Valdez Heliski guys stand out in my mind just because it's a, it's a large group of, of people, uh, all of whom have worked there for a long, long time. Um, you know, most people there have worked there for over 10 years, uh, if not 20. And I you know, because of that, I've always felt like, you know, that there was a, there was a, a wealth of information, a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of experience that uh, allowed the team to operate at a really, at a really high level and allowed you to maybe do things you certainly wouldn't do if you were just with one other guide in a remote setting. Um, and because of the respect everybody has for each other, there's, uh, it's, you know, dis- you know, anybody's dissent will just, you know, shut a plan down and mm-hmm. nobody really has a problem with that. And, people move on from that pretty quickly. Right. So it's, an, it's, you're saying it's an important part of the guide meeting that everybody has a voice and everybody feels comfortable voicing their opinion. And that plays a role in your decision-making for the day. Yeah, for sure. You, mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, enormously important. You, I would never want to work at a place where the snow safety was just uh, coming in a top down manner where you didn't have a voice. Yeah. How do you manage the disagreement within guide meetings and not let it go down a rabbit hole that takes two hours to discuss the merits of somebody's opinion on a persistent weak layer that's reactive or unreactive? Well, if you're spending two hours talking about the reactivity of a persistent weak layer, you're completely wasting your time because it has very little to do with ski guiding, uh, in my opinion. And snow safety definitely, I think it's, uh, it has its place, but, uh, you can do a lot of ski guiding, a lot of safe ski guiding without snow safety uh, or without snow science hmm. is what I really mean. Um, in some ways it can be at times a distraction. You know, there's just a lot, you can manage a, a good day of ski guiding with your terrain. And if you're, if you're, and, and that's where the emphasis needs to be and and so yeah i mean if somebody has a question if somebody has a disagreement about snow science there's no reason to spend that much time talking about it and move on you know i remember last year somebody you know we were we had a you know a cornice uh issue in alaska where the cornices weren't rooted very well and you know somebody felt like uh we were at a point where we didn't need to worry about it anymore because they hadn't been that 
active for you know a couple of days and another person disagreed and so we can you know and and it was a it was a, definitely a limiting factor because it eliminated a lot of runs uh if you can't be anywhere uh on any slope that's connected to exposure to cornices uh and not everybody agreed that that risk was gone and uh everybody in the room you know that had friends a friend or friends who've died from cornice avalanches and and so you just quickly move on and, and give it time there's no there's no need to force an issue like that and i don't i can't imagine a scenario where anybody wouldn't feel the need to force an issue like that sure so you just table it for the time being and and move and, on i mean you got you clients that are waiting to yeah. pay a lot of money to go, to go skiing with you and you got to kind of move on from that and and get the day started so to speak but clearly you want to be working with a group of people where everybody feels like they can speak up and say you know no or you know i think that's bullshit or whatever it is you know you don't you don't want to work with a group you know, in a, in, in a group where there's, you know, a couple people with a tremendous amount of experience and then a whole bunch of people in training or, or in an apprenticeship position where they don't feel like they can speak up because it's a very, you know, everybody's intuition, everybody's gut and everybody's observations are really critical. But the flip side of that is a, a newer guide walking into a guide meeting with a bunch of veteran ski guides and and maybe they should think about just observing for a little bit and sure speak up when they feel very strongly but do you, do you feel like there's a a role of that in guide meetings of, of kind of paying homage to the the veterans in the room and and listening to what they have to say no mm -hmm. i don't i think that uh everybody needs to speak up i think everybody's intuition is is very valuable um and I just don't think that there should ever, I mean, there's so many accidents that you can point to in so many different industries where somebody saw something going wrong, felt something going wrong, and didn't feel like they had the place to speak up and the accident happens. And, and, and it happens in construction and the airline industry and, and just anywhere where, there, where there's risk. And I very much feel like if, 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 uh, if somebody felt like you were experienced enough and valuable enough to bring you to the table, then you better feel like you can speak up. Mm, that's a good point. I like that. So your work with Mammut, um, when did you get started in that? And what sort of experiences has that brought you throughout your career? I started working Mammut a long time ago in the early 2000s as an ambassador, and then it turned into an actual job. I'm not sure how many years ago now, maybe six years ago. Uh, yeah, and like I said, I do a lot of training for professional groups, and that's been enormously valuable for me. Uh, obviously, if you're if you if you're if you put yourself in a position where you're forced to teach something, you end up learning it much much better than you ever possibly thought you could. Um, so, by being forced to teach a certain curriculum, I've definitely learned that. Th that, that skill set much much better and uh so it's been a yeah it's a, it's a great job it's great to work with uh ski patrollers and search and rescue teams and guide services from all over the country all over the, the continent and uh it's i always i always learn an enormous amount by being forced to teach to those people that already have a lot of experience nice well let's uh kind of run through some of the highlight reel of the product line there maybe starting out with uh Barry Vox Pulse Beacon line. 
Yeah, so we don't make the pulse anymore. Uh, we still service it, but uh, in 2017, we came, Mammoth came out with the BerryVox and the BerryVox S products, which replaced the pulse and the element beacons. Um, and the BerryVox S is their flagship beacon. Um, BerryVox is uh, intended it for the you know just to be the, the simplest beacon possible, the simplest user interface possible. Uh, the BerryVox S is also extremely simple, but it has a lot of backend capabilities that you can open up and uh, have access to a lot of advanced functions. Such as? Uh, the list is, is somewhat endless, but one of the ones that gets used the most by professionals is uh, folks that are learning how to or trying to master using analog technology uh, simultaneously with digital technology. Uh, digital technology is is great and was game changer has been game changer ever since it, it came out. But uh, there's just some Achilles heels of it that um, you know it's just anytime you're you're anytime you're expecting an electrical device to process information for you, there's chances for hiccups and uh, that analog traditional technique acts as a really good checks and balance to allow you to see when that's happening and then then troubleshoot those things really effectively. So um, it's a technique intended to, uh, for people that are more likely to be involved in rescues or complex rescues, uh, just because the chances of needing these skills should be fairly slight, because typically speaking, uh, you know, the multiple burials should be fairly rare. And of those multiple burials, a traditional modern beacon with a marking function should be able to easily solve most of those. But there are some that uh, are far more solvable with analog technology. Uh, and it, so that's kind of catering towards the person who uh, expects, you know, if you, uh, Mammoth's theory, you know, Mammoth's belief is that if you're a professional rescuer, you should be able to solve every single problem uh, with, with strategy, uh, even even the even the 1% of most complex problems, they should not uh, give you pause and you should have a very uh, methodical, strategic approach to solving those. Uh, and that's not always the case with certain technologies. Sure. So, that, so that's certainly one thing that sets the Berry Box S apart from most. Are there any other beacons you're aware of that have that analog function? You know, there's so many beacons out there. It's uh, that I'm not. I, I'm definitely not a master of everybody else's uh, products. Sure. Uh, I know that Arvo was making a product for a while that had analog. I'm not sure if you were able to use it simultaneously with the digital, which is kind of a key point for the uh, Berry Box beacons. Um, I know that there was an order. There was an order box, maybe like the S1 Plus or something, that had some kind of analog functionality. But I'm just really not. I'm not a master of other folks' beacons. Sure. How about uh, just the Berry Vox, a little bit more targeted to the recreational um, user? Why, why should somebody buy the Berry Vox over another beacon? Uh, you know, the, the Berry Vox is very much on par with kind of the industry standard of uh, closed platform beacons that don't have custom, custom, customizable functions. Um, you know, it, it is what it is when you take it out of the box kind of thing. Um, and it is a, definitely a very advanced beacon. Uh, it's got one of the greatest ranges of any beacon on the market. It's got a 70 meter range. Um, it's got, a, you know, it's a three antenna digital beacon with marking uh, and a very simple user interface. Uh, so it's not 
just for recreational users, mm-hmm. but some some of the advantages that come with the Bearbox S require that you spend more time with your beacon than a lot of people care to, sure. regardless of your skill set. Right. Um, Mammoth's had a strong product line in the Avalanche airbag game as well. Um, one of my favorite parts of, of looking at these airbags is that you can take the airbag in and out. It's removable. So as your pack wears out, you can maybe get a new pack or use several different pack sizes with the same airbag system. Um, maybe talk about some of the other merits of the removable airbag system airbags that Mammoth offers. Yeah, all of Mammoth's airbags are removable, which, like you said, have a lot of... Uh good advantages you know like you said if you wear if you're you know especially for people that really put a lot of wear on their packs like ski patrollers or guides if you wear out your pack you're not faced with replacing you know nearly a thousand dollar product you just need to upgrade the pack maybe or like you said you could have a a quiver of of pack sizes and the expensive part the guts of the airbag can be removed and transferred one to another or you know for example when i go skiing and the Arctic in May and June, it's uh, typically not a snowpack that makes me feel like I need an airbag, but I never want to really want to leave home without it. So uh, it, typically I'll go up there with, with an airbag and ski for an airbag for a few days and kind of get a, get a, a bead on what's going on. And then I have the option of skiing without the airbag and not having a completely separate pack. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, one of the common questions we get are, are, are whether or not we're going to develop, you know, battery fan based technologies. And, uh, to the best of my knowledge right now, you know, Mammut, I think feels that, uh, the gas systems are lighter than electric systems. Uh, they're arguably more reliable than electronic systems. Uh, you don't have the risk of any kind of electronics crashing or not charging or anything like that. Uh, and, and they're less expensive. So I think for now, um, man, it doesn't really see the advantage. I mean, there are some kind of, uh, trick advantages of some of the electric systems, like, you know, the, the pulsing fan, even if you've got a torn balloon and, uh, the ability to, deploy after it's been deployed and stuff like that. But I, I think right now our feeling is that those uh, advantages don't don't uh, outweigh the just kind of the, the core things like the uh, reliability and the weight of the bag and the affordability so that more people can use them. Sure. Sure would be nice to be able to get those carbon canisters over here. Talk to the DOT. <laughs> there are ways to finagle and get them in, I guess, but... Um, it's somewhat difficult. It, it seems like there's a couple different styles of the removable airbag system in terms of the protection and, and the just traditional airbag. Maybe you could speak to that just briefly. Yeah. So when Mammut first started wanted, wanting to get into the airbag business, they uh, partnered with a company called Snow Pulse out of Martigny, Italy, and, or Martigny, uh, Switzerland, rather. And uh, that is the company that developed the what we now call the protection system that's kind of the the horseshoe shaped balloon and when mammut partnered with them uh you know snowpulse wanted mammut to be selling a different product so at that point they were just 
using what we now call the RAS system, which is kind of the traditional, um, I don't know what you'd call it, kind of like a pillow airbag where it's behind your head. It does come down maybe about to your armpits or a little lower, uh, but 100% of the balloon is behind you. Uh, and it's, you know, both systems have their advantages. You know, one could argue that the protection system is a better balloon shape because of, of a few different things. Uh, you know, I always say that if you were to develop the absolute best balloon, you'd probably be looking for a balloon that was very long because the further down out of your body it goes, the more of your body is going to get pulled up and out of the snow. Uh, and then you'd probably want as much of the balloon in front of you as possible. Just like a PFD on a river, it encourages you to be face up. Uh, and then, of course, the, the PAS system being around your head gives you some uh, potential trauma protection, which uh, there's not a lot of science behind, but um, a lot of it's anecdotal. But there is an interesting study that Pascal Hagley did where they put accelerometers in dummies' heads and did show that there was a lot less kind of violent turbulence to mm -hmm. the head with that protection system. So, um, and, and it's one of the longer systems down the length of your body. Uh, in addition to being around your head and in front of you. So uh, there's a lot of advantages there. You know, some people don't really like the fact that that means that the balloon is stored in the shoulder straps. Uh, so the RAS system is, you know, if, if uh, you can make the pack feel um, more, like a more traditional backpack and shave a little weight, um, you definitely have a chance of getting some more people using the airbag because those are the things, you know, when people... You know, when people resist adopting airbag technology, you know, the, the arguments are usually weight and comfort and and expense. So we always want to kind of fight the good fight there and, and make sure the packs are as comfortable and affordable as possible. Sure. And the, the RAS system will, will go into some other manufactured packs as well which i kind of like you know like i've, I've yeah, always liked the kind packs and yep, you can yep. have a Dekine pack and a mammut pack and yep. use the same system from yep. one to the other and those have changed over time but i think uh jones still makes some backpacks mm. that are ras compatible and at one time there were some scott packs before they developed their own system sure but yeah those Dekine vests are, are popular with ski patrollers and they make a good cargo vest yeah um, so in addition to kind of slinging these products to pros there, you also kind of do some education online with, with man through Mamu, right? You have kind of a, or is there a separate website? Uh, yeah. There's a website, mamutavalanchesafety.com where we um, just, it's a good clearinghouse to disseminate information to people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's a, you know, a firmware update for a beacon or, preseason checklists, stuff like that. Right. Um, but it's a, it's a really valuable tool to go kind of geek out on the various idiosyncrasies of safety gear. Yeah. So if, a, if there's a patrol out there that's kind of switching from one brand and want to switch over to Mammut, you're, you're kind of the contact in the, in North America. Is that right? Yeah. And then, and, you know, for fleet operators, we offer these uh, trainings free of charge and, you know, there's a, tremendous amount of ski patrols uh, and guide services that, that, that use those products and take advantage of those trainings. We've done those trainings with Jackson Hole and Snowbird and Aspen Highlands and Snowmass and Crested Butte and Telluride and Loveland, mm -hmm. um, Alpine Meadows, Mammoth. I mean, there's 
it's definitely one of the more popular uh, beacons out there among professionals. Yeah, certainly seems so. And it seems like you guys have some good resources to provide support to those users. So that's great. Doug, I was hoping you could maybe recount a story or two of a close call when you were guiding or just recreating on your own in the avalanche realm. Um, anything come to mind? Sure. Too much. <laughs> um, but the, the, um, in 2009, my, I, I, uh, was in an avalanche while guiding and, um, I had been given an airbag four days before by a friend and, and client that I ski with a bunch. And it was, it was right after Big Wally died at the Jacksonville ski area where I was working as a ski patroller. And, uh, this guy knew that I was rattled and he sent me this airbag, which at the time, and, you know, even though it wasn't that long ago, 10 years ago, you know, you didn't see that many airbags. They weren't that easy to get. Uh, they felt prohibitively expensive. Uh, and just showed up at my doorstep and started wearing it. And four days later, it pretty much saved my life. So there's that. Where, <laughs> where were you? What, what happened? Can we break it down a little bit? I was uh, sure. in the Snake River Range, and I was guiding in an area that we had. Uh, we knew there was a persistent weak layer. We were sticking to pretty low angle stuff. And heli, I was, heli ski gun. Uh, yep. And uh, I was ended up in an area at the bottom of a run that I was a little less familiar with, and it was a little steeper than I wanted to be in, but I had kind of gotten myself into a committing position where it wasn't that easy to get out of, especially with uh, a snowboarder in the group. And we kind of went down the trim line next to the trees and two of us got down. And when the third person came down, it released to the ground. And I had enough time that I was able to push the snowboarder behind some big timber and kind of, you know, hoping that I was going to get uh, enough time in for a pole plant because all I needed to do was move probably six feet. Um, but after I pushed the snowboarder, I just got smashed by a wall of snow and pretty certain that none, none of those people in that group were going to come for me because it was pretty startling to everybody. And uh, there wasn't a guide group extremely nearby, so... I think the outcome probably would have been uh, very bad for me had I not had that airbag on. So you had time to, to pull the airbag and see it drag down a little ways? Yeah, I uh, got tumbled for a ways and wasn't used to wearing the things. I didn't even remember that I had it on at first. Um, and, uh, you know, within a short amount of time, realized the severity of the situation and I was under the snow and my mouth was full of snow and remember, but I was still moving and tumbling and remembered that I had this thing on my back and took me two or three swipes at my shoulder to find the trigger. But then I was able to successfully pull it and deploy it and um, instantly was pulled to the surface and came to rest on top of the snow. Mm. And the, Not injured. and the skier rider that triggered the avalanche was, was unscathed. He was fine. Yeah, broke at his feet and uh -huh. was, and didn't touch him. Right. Yeah. Well, it's it's a it's kind of a testament that we need to practice with these airbags too, right? And train our our bodies to intuitively reach for the trigger. You preach that at all? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, you definitely need to build some muscle memory into what it takes to to deploy the bag, how hard you need to pull, where the trigger is, so that you know even when you can't see it and you're kind of getting violently beaten up, you can find that trigger. Mm-hmm. I definitely know people that have been in avalanches that were not able to deploy them because the triggers weren't even out. Um, and there's certainly people out there that just aren't able to get to the trigger at all for whatever reason. Uh, obviously, it's not a you know it's not a guarantee that just because you're wearing an airbag, it's going to work or you're going to be able to deploy it, or even if you do deploy it, that it's going to bring you to the surface. But I think at this point, it's pretty obvious that it does increase your chances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the biggest thing I'm trying to do right now is get out of the mindset that I am going to take the trigger in and out of my pack. You know, you know, one of the biggest arguments that you hear is just the risk homeostasis argument about, you know, worrying that people are going to take bigger risks because they have an airbag on, which there's some evidence in various industries to point to that. But obviously we're not willing to shed other PPE in the name, you know, thinking it's going to make us safer. We don't, you know, give up our beacons and our helmets or our rope when we're climbing because we think it's going to make us safer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to, you know, but I do, that doesn't mean that that concern is not valid. And, the, you know, the best thing that I've heard people talk about, and I don't even know where I first heard this, but it was just the concept that if you are, if the handle, if the, if the trigger is always out and that becomes the norm, then it's far less likely for the airbag to influence your decision because mm-hmm. it's just always there, just like your beacon is always there. You don't go and say, oh, this run looks sketchy or this runs steep, so I'm going to put my beacon on. You just always have your beacon on, even if it's a low hazard day and you're meadow skipping on 28 degree slopes, you know, most people just have the beacon on, you know. And so I'm just trying to train, still train myself and other people to just always have it out to just, which is just one more step towards, you know, pushing back on that, you know, on the the idea that, that the typical risk homeostasis pattern could negatively influence your decision. Yeah, it's like just because the roads are dry doesn't mean that you're not going to buckle up in your exactly. car, right? Right. Yeah. And, good- when you, and when you and when you and when you put it in any other context like that, it seems so ridiculous. But yet, with the airbag, since it's been so we've been so slow to adopt it and struggled so much culturally with like how are we going to how are we going to include this piece of equipment in our kit, you know, and, and it's just been slow. And, you know, you get people who are like, Oh, I'll wear it if I'm skiing off a lift or out of a helicopter, but I'm not going to ski tour with it. Cause it's too heavy, even though it's weighs less than some of the most popular ski touring backpacks that we all used 10 years ago. Sure. That being said, I just talked about how I go to Norway and determine whether I need it and then take the airbag out. So obviously I haven't really, fully gotten there yet how do you turn a bad day in the mountains into growth and reflection professionally well i guess talking about it talking you know whether it's to people you know people that are close to you because it's probably you know you know if you almost died or or got severely hurt you're probably um it's it's a traumatic event and you're probably going to feel the the wrath of that traumatic event for a long time in, in various ways. And so it's certainly important that you don't just bury it. I know that I have not had the easiest time 
talking about that stuff in the past still isn't easy for me, that's for sure. And uh, it's challenging on a lot of different levels on just, you know, the, the, the community shame that people talk about, which is just the reality, whether, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, talking about it with people that you feel safe with and have the experience and that they can uh, relate or understand what you're going through or, or maybe even talking about it with somebody else that has nothing, no, no concept of skiing or avalanches, but understands traumatic events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like the, you know, it's kind of been a hot topic the last few years of PTSD within avalanche workers, you know, Dave Richards bringing it up down in Alta amongst others. Um, so it's, it's certainly something that I think is worth bringing some light to within the community and, and creating that, those opportunities to talk about traumatic events, right? Um, what advice would you have for a young ski guide looking to get in the game? Give yourself days? a bigger margin. And what does that mean to you? Terrain margin or? Yeah, the terrain, bring it back to terrain and give yourself a bigger margin and don't get sucked into the idea that you can become such a good snow geek uh, that you can that you can outsmart it all. Because you can't. Terrain is one thing you can control, terrain, right? Terrain is the one thing you can control. And it, it would be, uh, no matter how important skiing feels to you uh, at whatever point you're at in your life, uh, at the end of the day, it really isn't that important. And it's certainly not <laughs> worth dying over. Sure. How do, you, how do you deal with pushy clients that want to go steeper and more gnarly? And the conditions dictate to not do that. Um, you know, I'm fairly lucky at this point in that I don't really ski with people that I haven't known for a long time. It's pretty rare that I'm doing that. And most of them have also been around the block. Uh, and, you know, if you, because no matter who you are, if you, if you ski an enormous number of days over a long, long time, you know, you've, you've probably been involved in some stuff or seen some stuff, uh, unless you're just skiing really, really flat, benign terrain. Um, and that historically has not been where I've been skiing. Mm-hmm. So, so say somebody who's getting into heli ski guiding in Alaska and they're a newer guide, like what advice do you have? for them to combat that and they don't have the black book of, of trusted clients that you do. And they're just kind of thrown into the ship for their first season. Well, like I said, I'm very cynical about it. It's hard for me to even, uh, contemplate. I mean, it's hard you just to, say it's no. Hard for me to sit, well, it's hard <laughs> for me to answer that question in a really short manner because the problem, uh, is not just the pushy client. The problem is the, uh, the problem is also the guide because people get into ski guiding because they like to ski and it, you arguably as a ski guide, you probably have a conflict of interests um, because whether you think it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, you're, you're there because you wanted to get your rocks off and uh, that's just as big of a problem as the as the uh, pushy client. It's a good Maybe point. Even more so. Yeah. 
yeah, like how many heli ski guys you know that could afford to just go heli skiing, right? That's the, the way that they can more go than, heli skiing. More than you think. But like I said, I'm cynical. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Doug, you mentioned that you have two young kids. Has your risk tolerance changed after becoming a father at all? Yes, uh, it definitely has. Uh, but um, also, you know, old, old habits die hard if you, uh, you know, I still like what I like when I go skiing. Um, but it has definitely given me an entirely different way of uh, looking at the world and in terms of what's important and when I want to be skiing. Uh, you know, one of the challenging things about being a full-time ski guide is that you're expected to ski regardless of what's going on. Uh, whereas if you were a recreational experienced skier, you can be more selective about when you go out. So, um, luckily my family takes a lot of time or I give my family a lot of time and I'm more selective about when I go out. Um, but it's definitely, uh, changed my risk tolerance. It's also, it's just changed the whole experience. It's changed how much fun it is or how not fun it is. Uh, and I guess it feels a lot, just a lot more serious and a lot less carefree than it used to. Mm. Well, it seems like you have your priorities straight. Family first. I hope, I hope so. <laughs> well, Doug, I appreciate you making the time to, today to chat and share some stories and, and uh, talk a bit about Mammut's product offerings and the support that you all give to the the folks that use those products both recreationally and professionally um so thanks for your time thank you yeah you bet cheers Thank you all for listening to the episode today. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Doug Workman. I know I did. If you are enjoying the show, please tell a friend. Spread the word. If you have feedback for me, feel free to email me. The Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com is our email address. Give us a follow on the socials. That would be Instagram and Facebook. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. As always, the podcast artwork was created by Mike T. You the man T. And uh, music today was performed by Ketza. And the tracks that you heard were Boppin' and Road Trippin'. And for more tracks from Ketza, check out their website, Ketza, K-E-T-S-A dot U-K. Thank you for the use of those tracks. Appreciate it very much. Until next time, stay tuned. Stay safe and keep having fun out there. Don't forget to wash your hands. Cheers.